When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode was sponsored by Girls Can Crate, a subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Real women make the best heroes, and every month they deliver them to your front door. Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. Today, we are going back 1,300 years. Cool. To one of the most advanced, most influential, and most important places in the world, 600 AD. 600 AD, most advanced, most important. Boy, 600 AD is a big, big century. I'm going to go, I'm going to go with China. We're going to China. Ah! <laughs> we are going to Tang Dynasty China. Cool. What many see as the golden age yes. of Chinese history. Here we are in the harem of Emperor Taizong. Mm. A 14-year-old girl has just won what is essentially the world's biggest beauty contest ah. to become a fifth-ranked concubine. <laughs> In the court of the 40-year-old emperor, (laughs) this position is basically a maid. Okay. Her main responsibility is changing the emperor's sheets. Wow. So that's exciting. From this position, she will rise to become one of the most feared and tyrannical rulers in world history. (laughs) A ruthless cruel, lascivious, grasping, (laughs) murderous viper who will wipe out 12 branches of the Tong clan, (laughs) usurp her husband's kingdom after enslaving him with her sexual wiles and murdering him, (laughs) kill half the members of her immediate family, steal the throne of China from her son, (laughs) kill her own newborn daughter in order to frame the empress. (gasps) Yikes. And eventually, the empress and the number one concubine's hands and feet be lopped off and their bodies put into a vat of wine, leaving them to drown, (laughs) saying, now those two witches can get drunk to their bones. What? Are you kidding me? It's a very exciting story. (laughs) (laughs) The problem is, of course, that almost none of that is true. No. No, come on. (laughs) Let me have it. It's a fantastic story. Uh, But, in my opinion, the real story is even better. uh. Her name is Wu Zhao, although those who have heard of her will more likely know her as Wu Zetian. Mm -hmm. And she was the only female emperor in 2,000 years of Chinese history. Uh Her story is veiled in so many layers of propaganda and revision and lies and yeah. and nonsense that it's almost impossible to track down the real woman. But we're going to try. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating Women You've Never Heard Of.
So to help us uncover the truth behind the infamy of Wu Jiao, I enlisted Dr. N. Harry Rothschild, who is a professor of Chinese history at the University of North Florida and the author of two fantastic books about Emperor Wu Jiao. Cool. The first mention we have of Wu Jiao is when she enters the harem. She's 14 years old. She's spectacularly beautiful. She's the daughter of a merchant. She's quite well-educated. And she's and, very good at changing sheets. <laughs> and she's very good. Well, maybe she wasn't, actually. Oh. <laughs> because the emperor was not a big fan of her. Oh. <laughs> she is so well-known throughout not just the court, but the entire capital, modern-day Xi'an, at that point, Chang'an. Mm-hmm. There is a song about her called Enchanting Miss Wu. Ooh. She was so well known for her beauty. Wow. Wu is her family name, because in Chinese, the family name comes first, and then your personal name comes second. Mm-hmm. We don't know her name. Wow. For most women throughout a long period of Chinese history, all we will ever know about them, if we know anything, is their family name. Mm. Their personal name does not matter. So history knows this woman as Wu Zetian. She's named after the palace gate where she was made an empress. Really? Which is not a particularly cool way to get your name. That's extremely odd. But Dr. Rothschild believes that the least we can do is give her the name she chose for herself. Zhao is a character that she creates for herself. It's an invented character, a new character that she, as a 64-year-old, takes this as her own name. I feel like as the anomalous first and only emperor in Chinese history, she at the very least deserves to be known by her own name. He and we are going to call her Wu Zhao. How do you spell that? Oh, it's W-U-Z-H-A-O. Boy, you're so good at Chinese, Olivia. How do you have? It's almost like I must have lived in China for several years. Almost like you speak Mandarin. (laughs) Funny. (laughs) Okay, but actually, it's going to be very clear to anyone who actually speaks Mandarin that I haven't gotten much practice in the past seven years. And that my tones are all over the place. So, <laughs> when Wu Zhao enters the court, she's nobody. There are 28 women ahead of her in the rankings. It's entirely probable that the emperor is never going to notice that this concubine exists. Mm. And he doesn't seem to have taken much of a shine to her. At one juncture, when Wu Jiao is around 73 or 74 years old, a minister in court questions one of her decisions. And she relates a story of her youth to sort of quash his challenge. She is brought into the harem, into the imperial seraglio of this famous bearded emperor, uh, Tang Taizong, who is famous for his equestrian prowess. One evening when he was sharing the couch with this 14 or 15 year old girl, he says to her, I have this horse who's virtually unbreakable. Uh, His name is Piebald Lion. And she says, well, if you gave me three things, 
I could break him. And he sort of laughs. Uh, he says, he's amused by this. And he says, uh, what would you need to break the horse? He says, I'd need a, a riding whip, a mace, and a dagger. And he says, okay, uh, so how would you then break Piebald Lion with these three items? And she said, well, if I took the riding whip and beat him with it, and he didn't submit to my will, then I would take the cudgel and smash him in the side of the head. And then, if the horse still didn't submit to my will, I'd slit his throat with a dagger and leave him in the pooling blood. And Taizong said, gosh, you know, look at the time. I'd really like to stay, <laughs> stay the night with you here. But uh, uh, <laughs> the vibes that he got from her response are perhaps telling because she was in his harem for 14 years and never rose from her fifth rank. <laughs> this story, surprisingly, Yikes. doesn't seem to have gone over well with her husband. <laughs> So, how does she rise from that to the only female emperor in Chinese history? Boy, is it by power of a mace and a dagger <laughs> and a whip? <laughs> kind of. Huh. But also the kind of experience that knows how and when to use that story for maximum effectiveness, right? <laughs> I mean, this is one of the main questions. How did she pull this off? How did she become China's first and only female emperor? Part of it is just this incredible sort of will and strength of character, but a lot of it is political experience. She has an extremely long period of time where she is assembling the experience needed to rule this kingdom. <laughs> As Taizong is dying, she seems to have formed a relationship with his son, Gaozong. Gaozong was allowed to do what few equipped men were. He could enter into the imperial seraglio. And uh, she apparently at one point helped him with his toilet. Mm. You know, some chemistry sparked there. But after Taizong's death, all of the women in the imperial seraglio were sent to, to Buddhist convents. Gaozong keeps making excuses to come and visit the nunnery and pray for his father's soul, just happens to run into Wu Jiao there, mm. and eventually they conspire to get her moved back to court as his official concubine. Wow. This is wild. This does not happen. And it couldn't have happened without... Gaozong's empress giving her support to this plan. Gaozong is already married, and the empress has a rival, a consort who Gaozong is paying all his attentions to. And so the empress actually encourages him to take this additional concubine, knowing that he's uh, inclined to the, the latest flavor. So uh, the empress encourages Gaozong to take Wu Jiao into his seraglio. Little did she know. <laughs> this was a grave miscalculation. Right. <laughs> she is now a high-ranking concubine, 
in the court of her first husband's son, Emperor Gaozong. Mm. And she may have stayed as a fairly powerful high-ranking concubine for the rest of her life, but... Her husband has a stroke shortly after she eventually is elevated to empress, and the former empress gets deposed, you know, supposedly for smothering Wu Zhao's child. There are all sorts of kind of scandalous stories. And, and she rises to become empress. Within four or five years, he starts suffering these strokes, and she ends up sitting in tandem with him on the throne. And for the last 25 years of the reign, is effectively a co-ruler. Later, Confucian scholars will tell us that concubine Wu Zhao murdered her own newborn daughter mm-hmm. in order to frame the empress for the murder and get her kicked out of court. Oh. This is nonsense. But this is the story that mm. starts circulating, that this is a woman who would murder her own child just to get a little more power. The favorite concubine that the empress was worried about follows soon after into exile and Emperor Gaozong elevates Wu Zhao. She sits in state with him on a throne of equal height Mm. and she is the power behind the throne for 25 years. Wow. She builds up the court and everyone in the court know that most of them owe their jobs to her. Wow. And even then, she doesn't try to become an emperor, even though he offers her the throne uh, in his later years. Even after his death, she waits another six years of a period of incubation. It's this same kind of combination of being cautious and being brazen. She doesn't do this till she's in her mid-60s. She takes over the court as an empress dowager for six years, sort of aligning all of the possible conditions for the pivotal moment when she would actually take the throne. She deposes the son that's supposed to be in charge, but she also had spent most of her life grooming up her favorite son Mm -hmm. to become the emperor and seemed absolutely committed to making sure that this son that she and Gaozong both wanted to be the emperor was going to be the emperor. And until he dies, she doesn't seem to display any sort of ambition for taking the power herself. Mm. Once he's gone and she's left with what she sees as two totally incompetent, useless sons, that's when she seems to start thinking about the idea that maybe it might not be a great idea if these guys were put in charge. Huh. This is a skill that keeps coming up throughout her life, knowing when to act and when to wait. Ah. She is an extremely good political maneuverer. She is dangerous. She is violent. She rules with an iron fist in her court. Mm. She has a very strong and vibrant secret police. And if you cross her, you will go down. Wow. But she is a benevolent and a stable ruler for the people. She institutes these really powerful reforms that actually do help the kingdom. And at a point when the Tang Dynasty is really starting to crumble and in danger of falling apart, modern historians now realize, you know, she is the force that really stabilizes things, holds everything together, and allows the Tang Dynasty to continue for another 200 years. Mm. 
And while it seems fairly horrifying to us to hear about the emperor poisoning her own granddaughter, for example, to <laughs> maintain hold on power, this is fully in line with Confucian rules of government. Yeah. The ruler is not held to the same standards as anyone else, and you can't judge the ruler for things that would be a crime in anyone else. Their job is to keep the kingdom together. Yeah. And whatever they have to do to do that is what they should do. Yeah. Always the big picture. Exactly. And she absolutely does that. Some of our listeners might know about the the system of entry into Chinese government Mm. Until the 20th century is by passing a test. Mm-hmm. You pass this series of tests and you indicate your worth mm-hmm. and you're in. And it doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter who you are related to. That's how you get in. Yeah. She instituted that system that Did lasted she? for 1,300 years. Really? Cool. Anyone who is skilled should be working for me. Mm. That's awesome. It's famously like the hardest test in right. the history of the yes, world. This is not an easy civil service exam. You start studying when you're three, and you might take the exam when you're like 30 or something. You spend your right. entire life studying. You are expected to memorize literally every book that exists. Right. And then the questions will be like, what is the 17th word on the 32nd page of this book? And then you have to <laughs> produce it. It's It's amazing. It's an astonishing testament to the brain power that none of us are using anymore. Yeah. The power of memory (laughs) that has been superseded by Google. Right. Yeah. It's clearly not looking for innovative thinkers, right? Oh, yeah. This is rote knowledge. Yes. But, like, democratization of access. Yeah. Whoever the smartest people are should be running the country. Well, yeah, the, the idea that skill is more important than connection Mm-hmm. in China yeah. is astonishing. Yeah. And it was beautiful in theory, <laughs> as most ideas of equality are. <laughs> but the reality was that the wealthy people could afford better tutors. And sure. And you can't afford to spend 27 years studying for a test if you can't eat food. Yeah, exactly. But one of the things I love about these exams is that you can see that humans have always been humans um, throughout all centuries. We have some archaeological evidence of the testing site. They had that age-old problem of people just like looking on other people's papers. <laughs> so they tried to prevent that by making them individual testing huts. But even then, they still figured out ways to cheat because we have some existing uh, scholars' robes. And so these are like the the classic medieval Chinese robes where the sleeves go like all the way down to the ground, you know. Right. And they have some of those where if you turn it inside out, the entire inside of the robe is covered in cheats, just information (laughs) for the exam. (laughs) Wow. Humans are humans. <laughs> and now let's pause for a word from our sponsor. Girls Can Crate is an awesome subscription box that introduces girls age 5 to 10 to real, fearless women who made the world better. Every month, this subscription box brings the story of a new incredible woman, a beautifully designed book, hands-on seam activities, and more. And if you're on a budget, they have mini crates too. Real women make the best heroes, and every month, Girls Can Crate delivers them. We promise, this is so much cooler than you can imagine. 
Go to girlscancratecrate.com, use our special coupon code, HERNAME, all one word, to get 20% off your first box on any subscription. We guarantee you're going to love it as much as the girls you buy it for. That's girlscancratecrate.com and use the code HERNAME to get 20% off. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So while she might not be prizing innovation mm-hmm. in her employees, she is instituting really innovative new processes and values into a society that is very resistant to change. She's making massive changes, but always finding ways to frame them in terms of tradition, in terms of what's proper, in terms of Mm. what has been done before. Yeah. And it works extremely well. People are very excited about these innovations because they've been given the hook to hang it on. Yeah. To make it okay. Right. Classic, classic manipulation of history to justify whatever it is you're doing in the present. It's a very, very effective political tool. (laughs) Right. And one of the things she does is elevate the status of women. Cool. In ways that are very grounded in tradition. Mm. She is highlighting the achievements of important women in the past. She's publishing books on important women. Mm. She is finding places in the structures and the ceremonies to put women in places of much higher visibility. And not just herself. She's bringing in lots of women in the court structure to be publicly visible in ways that they have never been before. She gives new names to all of the different ranks of concubines to make them parallel to those of bureaucrats, of the nine ranks of bureaucrats. They're signifying, like, these women's jobs are as important to the kingdom as those guys over there. They serve official state functions. They're Mm. not just baby machines. Mm. One of the most shocking, to me, innovations that she comes up with is she creates new words. Now, to people who don't speak Chinese, that does not seem like a big deal. You do not make up new words in China. If you have a new concept, mm. you have to find a way to explain it with the words you have had for a thousand years. Really? It's my favorite because you end up with delightful names for things. So like so like a cell phone is a shoji, a, a hand machine. Really? A computer is a dianao, an electric brain. Oh my gosh. The other fun part is that once you figure out how this all works, you can sort of guess. Really? For example, what might a kangaroo be called? Oh. If you had to come up with a new name with no new words. So I guess you need a a jumping uh, ears. (laughs) It's a bag rat. Oh, it's a bag rat. (laughs) It's a bag rat. (gasps) A sloth. I love that. Is a tree lazy. Oh, I love it so Which really, when you think about it, that's what a sloth is. (laughs) It's sloth. Lazy. Tree lazy. Bag rat. 
Oh my gosh. I love it. Skunk? What might a skunk be? Um, stink rat. <gasps> so close. <laughs> it's a stink weasel. Oh. <laughs> so you have to come up with ways to describe things without ever, ever creating a new word. That's delightful. So this decision to create entirely new characters, words that have never existed before, is shocking. Mm. This is a shocking thing to do. Wow. But she understood the power of language and how important it was to create new concepts. Yeah. And to take hold of that power in the most fundamental way. Mm. Her name, Zhao, is one of those characters that she created. Oh, that's she awesome. She made up wow. her own name. Which is why it's especially important, I think, to call her by her correct name. Mm. She embraces Buddhism and Taoism, which brings her closer to the common people. She builds a famous pagoda tower called the Big Wild Goose Pagoda, again, with <laughs> the way you name things, the Big Wild Goose Pagoda. Mm -hmm. It was the biggest Buddhist temple in the world, and it may have been the tallest building in the world at that point. Whoa! It was 180 feet tall. Wow! In, in 7th century China. Huh. I've been there, and I've seen it. Where is it? It's in modern-day Xi'an, okay. which was Chang'an, her capital. Mm-hmm. And it's still extremely impressive, and it's lost three of its stories in the 16th century during an earthquake. So it's only seven stories to tell now. Wow. And it's still impressive. Cool. This is my favorite innovation. She created, probably, the world's first suggestion box. Ah, really? And she put this <laughs> specially designed suggestion box out in the public square. No way. And anyone can put a suggestion in the box for direct consideration by the emperor. Wow. I love that. It's amazing anywhere. Mm. But in a society that is as strictly stratified, yeah. to give people a way to leapfrog over dozens of layers of bureaucracy, mm. that's astonishing. That's going to make the bureaucrats really mad. <laughs> well, ironically, the bureaucrat who was tasked with creating it was also the first victim of the other aspect of this suggestion box, which is another good example of her dual brilliance. Hmm. It's a suggestion box. It is also a tattling box. Oh. And if you know of a corrupt official, you are welcome to submit your story and his name to the suggestion box for the Whoa. emperor to review. Wow. Again, providing massive amounts of information yeah. for her secret police yep. to maintain the tightest possible control over her court. Yeah. She sort of makes change her hallmark. Change is the stability mm. with her. And mm -hmm. where other emperors will have... Um, emperors institute reign eras. So they will name the era... And they choose a very important auspicious name for their reign. Mm -hmm. And when a reign era begins, time starts over. You yeah. are literally starting time. It is the first year of reign era yeah. peace and prosperity. Right. There are some emperors who, for 30 years, they only have one reign era. She has about 15 different reign eras. And whenever something good has happened that she wants to announce to the whole empire that... Something awesome has happened and it's because of me. It's like the entire empire is on Wu Zhao standard time. Wu Zhao 
starts a new reign era every couple of years. Ah. She understands the power of a big party, mm. which you always have to institute a new reign era. But also this legacy that she's building of change as the stable. Yeah. And so she is installing new reign eras for things like the year after she officially became emperor, she sent out a proclamation that she had regrown a tooth <laughs> and therefore is establishing a new reign era, which will be called longevity. She throws a massive party with a parade with 100,000 soldiers wow. in parade, building giant public monuments that are rebuilding ancient monuments that have been lost and destroyed, yes. only better. Yeah. And writes an anthem for all of the people to sing at the opening of the monument. I mean, it's a, she <laughs> understands public spectacle, and she is, like, media savvy. Yeah. Cool. And then later in her reign, she has a Taoist wizard decoct an elixir of immortality. When she drinks this, at this time she's in her late 70s, she feels slightly better. Then she once again uh, inaugurates a new era. You know, there's this orientation of the larger state calendar to her extended physical self. She's willing to take this role extremely seriously. If you cross her, you're gone. Mm -hmm. But not take herself too seriously. She has a huge temper and a huge sense of humor. Huh. When she first becomes not emperor, but grand dowager, there are a couple of different rebellions. And one of them is led by one of the Li princes, but one of his underlings, Luo Bin Wang, is a famous poet. He writes these essays, these polemics attacking her. And it's brought to her attention. And the manifesto says, Miss Wu, he refuses to re recognize her as a grand dowager. Miss Wu, who has falsely usurped authority to run the court, is by nature cold and unyielding, by birth lowly and obscure, innately jealous, her moth-like eyebrows. Moth -like eyebrows allow other women no quarter, or embroidered sleeves, and artful slander. Her vulpine glamour beguiled the ruler. Beneath her pheasant's plumage, the former Empress Wang was trapped. This musky dough once plunged my true sovereign into rotting frenzy, vying with his own father. Her heart is half viper and half chameleon. Her disposition is that of a ravenous jackal or wolf. She is hated by men and spirits alike. Neither heaven nor earth can stand her. When she hears this, you, know, you would think that she would fly into this rage. And she turns to her court when she learns of this and says to the prime ministers, this is your fault. They sort of are taken aback. And then she says, why isn't this man on my payroll? <laughs> Anyone who can write rhetoric this good, and anyone who can get people fired up with this flamboyant, bombastic propaganda, they should be writing for me. <laughs> I mean, she's so deeply pragmatic and yet aware of the ridiculousness of this entire situation. Wow. But mastering um, the whole bureaucratic 
system so exactly. well. But also knowing it's all just a game. Right. Wow. I, and even this insult, I think, gives us another clue to why she's so successful. She's famously young and beautiful, even until she dies. She's 80 when she dies, and yet there are still poems written about her beauty, even by the people who hate her. <laughs> right? That moth-like eyebrows is not an insult. That's a compliment. Oh. And so even while throwing shade, they are complimenting her. She's so beautiful and she uses it for evil. Ah. This is a woman at this point in her mid-60s. Cool. And she was very aware of the power of this image. Mm. And this is, I think, what's interesting. We don't know how much of her own rhetoric she really believed. She was deeply superstitious. She absolutely believed implicitly in the power of omens and signs. And and although she used them to reinforce her reign, she really seems to have been a genuine believer Mm. and to have been actively seeking these out as confirmation Mm. that she was doing the right thing in ruling, not as an excuse. I see. So like regrowing a tooth, that's not just a weird excuse to throw a big public party but she really thought that was a huge important sign right it's a symbol Mm. local officials around china start sending in reports that flowers that usually bloom in the spring are blooming in the fall Ooh, that she has had this magically regenerative effect on the kingdom that her regrowing a tooth and keeping her perpetual Mm. youth and beauty is a sign of the perpetual youth and beauty of the kingdom. But this superstition did make her vulnerable Mm. in some interesting ways, too. When she had the empress and the first concubine dismembered and put into the vat of wine, maybe. Oh, I really want that one to be true. She definitely had them killed. Okay. Whether she dunked them in a vat of wine... That might be hearkening back to another evil villain from Chinese history who did a similar thing and they're trying to make her into... Oh, well, so somebody at some point put somebody, chopped off arms and legs and... Yeah, a previous terrible Chinese empress. <laughs> so, okay. But while the number one concubine is dying, she threatened that when she is reincarnated, she's coming back as a cat. And Wu Jiao is going to be a mouse... And she is going to inflict all manner of unspeakable tortures on the mouse that will be Wu Zhao. Mm. This really freaked Wu Zhao out. And she banned cats from court. Wow, I love that. She really seems to have believed these things. That's awesome. But once Wu Zhao becomes the emperor, she decides, all right, enough of this. I have to prove that I am stronger than this threat so she trained a cat and a parrot to get along she trained the cat to leave the parrot alone the word for parrot is a homophone of jiao but with different tones right all of the tones oh. of chinese that yeah. mean different things and so homophones in chinese are extremely important language is so important that for instance because the word for the number four sounds like the word for death mm. Many Chinese people still today will not say the number four if there's a child in the room because you're basically daring the evil gods to come and kill them. Whoa. So is meant to be this really profound symbol of her ultimate power. Even this cat won't attack a parrot. Mm. 
as soon as they are publicly displayed, the cat immediately tore the parrot to pieces. <gasps> Whoa. <laughs> it was an unfortunate moment. Yikes. I mean, she must have read a lot into that symbolism. Yeah. Imagine how terrifying that Whoa. would be. So she's extremely successful. She is fighting off revolutions. She is fighting off contenders. She is keeping her power and control for almost 50 years mm. until 705. She's 80 years old. Wow. And she is finally overthrown by one of the sons that she has sidelined and exiled decades before. And she's forced to abdicate. Mm. She spends a little less than a year sort of sequestered away, depressed and miserable. And then she dies. Her tomb is the only one in the world that contains two emperors. Huh. There is her tomb. And there is the tomb of Gaozong, her second husband. It's this beautiful, symmetrical tomb complex. Chinese architecture, of course, is everything is always symmetrical. Mm -hmm. So hers is on one side, her husband is on the others. And then there are two giant memorial tablets. They already have a stele on one side of this path with the achievements of Gaozong's reign on it. Later for Wu Jiao, they erected this second stele. Her son, Zhongzong, in theory, is the one who is supposed to inscribe something for her. Why he doesn't is a good question. We don't know exactly why. He's, he's incompetent, that may be one reason. <laughs> but maybe he doesn't know at that point what to say. And so it became known as the Wu Bay, as the blank stele. In a certain way, it is the ideal monument to Wu Zhao. The blankness or the emptiness, it's the bottom part of the character for Zhao, is mm. this void or emptiness. And it sort of defies and deflects easy labels. And it's still blank. Wow. No one ever wrote on it. <gasps> wow. This is the perfect symbol for the reign of Wu Zhao. Wow, it really is. Nobody knows what to say about yeah. her. We're what do you say? still deciding what to say. I think that's a perfect symbol, too, for how it felt compiling this episode. Mm. No matter what we talk about, we're leaving part of it out. Mm-hmm. She is this study in opposite. She's like, she's all the things. Mm. She is cruel and benevolent and cautious and bold and ambitious and restrained and traditional and innovative. Mm. And you can't tell her story. There's no way to tell this story. Mm. This is the perfect memorial to her. Wow. What do we say? Cool. So what is her legacy? Then she has a blank tomb. What is her legacy? Mm. She's mostly unknown in the Western world. Yeah. But she's wildly famous in China. So how did she become so vilified? How did her life become this, this textbook villainous? Yeah. Her dynasty has sort of been erased. Mm. 
1300 years of Confucianism has sort of tried to turn her into this caricature of sort of monstrous appetites of mm-hmm. uh, being lascivious, corrupt, lewd and sort of delegitimizing her. They turn her into a cautionary tale. Yeah. And they rewrite everything to make her the worst possible human being that has ever lived. Yeah. So that they can say that's what <laughs> happens when a woman is in charge. Let's all make sure that never happens again. And there's there's the classic double standard that's often applied that, that, that all these male rulers have their hundreds and hundreds of women we take as sort of an article of faith as sort of the way that the system works but she ends up having a couple of lovers in her later years the Jung brothers they would dress up in basically cosplay as Taoist immortals ah. and sort of like ride stick horses around court for her entertainment <laughs> Thereby casting her as the Taoist Queen of Heaven. If they are these Taoist immortals and they're in her court, she's the Queen of Heaven. And this is utterly intolerable to all the men around her who seem to be conveniently forgetting that she was 14 years old when she married the emperor. And no one seemed to think that was a problem. Mm. This is often used as evidence of her extreme deviance and lasciviousness. She is charactered mercilessly about this. She shows up in Ming Dynasty porn oh. a thousand years after she dies as the butt of the joke. Wow. A thousand years. They really won that battle for the control of the narrative. <laughs> right. But in the past 30 or 40 years... Things have finally started to become a little more nuanced in the way that China is talking about Wu Jiao. Hmm. There's Wu Zetian perfume. Ooh, what does it smell like? Very expensive. Does it smell like blood and death? (laughs) There is a Wu Zetian fashion line. She's in soap operas. Even her hometown got in on this rehabilitation Uh of Wu Jiao. They have built a phoenix tower... It has nothing to do with anything, historically. Um, it has been built as the Wu Zetian Tower there. And instead of the dragon boat races that you have on the fifth day of the fifth lunar month, they have phoenix boat races uh, with all-women crew. I like that. I like the symbolism of the phoenix, too, that like, yeah. her character is rising up from the ashes now and reborn exactly. into something... New and beautiful. Cool. Yeah. There is Wu Zetian Baijiu, uh, like posh grain liquor. Oh. With, that is specifically her brand cool. of Baijiu, and it is very high-end liquor. <laughs> she is an expensive commodity now. Mm. And as funny as that seems in the U.S., to me, in China... Where an ostentatious display of wealth is the real true marker of success. That feels like the best victory. Ah. She has come out on top. Mm. And she is the mark of poshness and wealth. 
And there is no better way to be remembered in China than that. This is the victory. That is beautiful. Huge thanks to our guest, Dr. Harry Rothschild. If you'd like to learn more about Wu Zhao, you can find links to his books and many other resources on our website at whatshernamepodcast.com. Huge thanks also to our Patreon sponsors for this episode, Jesse Bray Sharpen, Leslie Light, and Chantel Oliver. If you'd like to become a patron, visit our website at whatshernamepodcast.com and click donate. There you can find all sorts of thank you gifts, prizes, and you can help support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. Consultation work and our voiceover was provided by the wonderful Xiao Jing Miao. Music for this episode was provided by the Shaanxi Provincial Song and Dance Troupe, Sao Jiangguo, Li Xiangting, Zhu Runfu, the Hubei Chime Bells Array, Charlie Huang, and Tang Dai Li Yuefu Yuanzu. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle. What kind of underwear was Queen Elizabeth I having to deal with when she dominated that English throne? What did women in ancient Egypt use for contraception? Was the 19th century hoop skirt used to suppress women, or did it actually liberate them? Welcome to the Explores, where we time travel back through women's history to discover what it was really like to be them. Join me as we walk through past eras, exploring their worlds so we can appreciate their stories. Ready to meet a whole host of fascinating women? Just look for the Explores wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go traveling. Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. <laughs>